Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Lane Buckman. She is an ex-fundamentalist. She worked with Kenneth Copeland Ministries in Fort Worth and also at the Eagle Mountain International Church. So, Lane, welcome to my show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Leslie. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I was mesmerized by your videos. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I was listening to you talk about going to this church. And we talked before I started recording. I was like, you know, just tell me what started you. So tell me what got you into going to this kind of church in the first place. Sure. Well, I did not grow up in a religious family. My father would not step foot in a church. My mother was deeply into new age. And so we were not a religious family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right around my 21st birthday, several devastating events happened at the same time. It's several personal traumas, family traumas happening. And I spiraled into a pretty deep depression. My father left and my mother had a nervous breakdown when he left. And it was just, it was bad. I mean, we were in a really bad place. And I was, I just wanted to be happy. I was looking for some peace. I had been having suicidal ideations and that's not good. So, you know, like middle of the night, I'm awake in the middle of the night because I I couldn't sleep and I was flipping through television channels and I landed on this minister, this television preacher. That's what I called them at the time. Television preacher, Jesse DePanis. And he was so happy and he just exuded joy and he exuded everything he looked like on the outside, what I wanted to feel like on the inside. Wow. Now, how old were you then? About 21. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was I was an adult, yeah. a very young adult, a very sheltered adult. Yeah. I, I'm an only child from a military family. Oh, I grew up, you know, very overprotected. So very naive. Yeah. Uh, but I fell in love with his message. And he was talking about being happy. He was talking about how a relationship with Jesus could fill that void in you. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that. And he was saying things like, I'm not going to ask you for money. You know, God takes care of me. If you want to give me money, that's great. If the Lord leads you to give me money, that's great. But I'm not going to ask you for money. And so the first kind of little ding for me was, oh, he's not Jimmy Swaggart or, you know, that other guy, Jim Baker. He's not him because I had heard of them. And so he's not asking me for money. So he must be okay. And then he was saying, and don't take my word for it. Get your Bible, read your Bible, fact check me. And I, you know, that appealed to me too. Here's someone telling me to think for myself. Yeah, he sounds legit when he says that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That's a problem. Yeah. I did did go buy one. I had one because I went to Catholic school for two years, but the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible are different. Oh, they're two different. And I learned that. Yeah. So I got a friend who was a Southern Baptist friend and got her to take me to the Christian bookstore. And we picked me out a Bible and it just snowballed from there. Mm. I am an all or nothing kind of girl. Mm -hmm. And I had been so depressed 
And I'll tell you, my mother and I had gone to visit her parents shortly after the Bible buying. And I was sitting on the back porch at my grandparents' house. And I was just, I mean, my mother was not in a good place. And it was very difficult trying to deal with all the things I had going on and my mother's breakdown. And I was sitting on the back porch and I felt like I heard a voice Not like out loud, not like somebody talking out loud, like your inner voice. Yeah. But it wasn't me said, are you ready to try it my way? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I am. And I just like, I went cold turkey from the life I had been living, which was not a bad life because I was a very good girl. Mm -hmm. But I stopped listening to secular music. Mm -hmm. I stopped watching secular television. I stopped going to secular movies. And wherever I took something out of my life, I put the word of God in. So I got Christian music. I started watching Christian television. I bought Christian books. I buried myself in Bible studies. I've studied various languages and languages come really easily to me. So I was studying various languages so I could get to the real meat of a translation. You know what, Lane, what's so interesting to me is you almost had a a trauma response toward this religion. It was almost like, yeah, you weren't brought up in this. There's so many people that are brought up in this. That's all they know. That's their identity. You did this to yourself. That's what was so interesting too to me, that you kind of did it to yourself. And I don't mean it in a bad way or derogatory way. I'm just saying you did this to yourself. Yeah, it was a DIY brainwash is what I tell people. (laughs) DIY brainwash. Oh my God. Well, it snowballed. So I just, the way I had been living before wasn't working. So I'm going to try something completely different. I threw myself into this religion. And when I did, I found that peace I was looking for. I found through Bible study and the relationship I was building with my faith, I found that peace and I found happiness. And part of that was because I separated myself from some bad influence in my life. And also because all of that study took the focus off of actual healing I probably needed to do, you know, instead of facing what I had going on and dealing with that, I threw myself into something else. So it relieved the pressure and, you know, it just, it worked. And at that time I was watching Jesse on television. And then from watching Jesse on television, I had also started watching Kenneth and Gloria Copeland on television. I hated Gloria Copeland to begin with. I couldn't watch her, but I told myself that was misogynistic. So I made myself watch her. (laughs) Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I started going to the Baptist church with my friend, but then Kenneth and Gloria do what's called a Southwest Believers Convention every year in Texas. It's a gathering of like-minded word of faith. Whole churches take their congregations out to this thing. There will be thousands, sometimes more than 10,000 people at the conventions. My mom had started watching Jesse with me and he was having the same healing effect for her. And she heard that he was going to be teaching out at the Southwest Believers Convention. And we followed him out to that Southwest Believers Convention, not knowing what we were walking into. We were both terrified. We were afraid of those tongue-talking people. Yeah. Because we had heard about those people, and we thought those people were probably a little scary. We became those people later. (laughs) 
gosh. But we went out to the Southwest Believers Convention, and I'll tell you this story, and then that will be the end of my introduction, kind of, and you can ask me <laughs> no, go ahead. anything. <laughs> yeah. But this, it helps explain yeah, no, yeah. why I got deeper into it sure. and stayed in it. The year we went out to the Southwest Believers Convention, I think it was 1992. I honestly don't remember. Mm -hmm. But the Southwest Believers Convention runs for a week. Mm -hmm. And there's a teaching schedule throughout the day. And then there's a big service at night. That big service at night starts about seven. And it usually goes for a couple of hours. It can go up to four hours. I've wow. left the convention center, you know, midnight before. That year, during the day, well, leading up to that big evening session, Kenneth's niece was killed in a car accident oh, no. during the convention. And now my mom and I didn't know anything about Kenneth Copeland or his family, anything about that. We just happened to be at the convention and they started kind of talking about it from the platform because everybody else in the place that knew who he was knew what had happened because mm. it was big news. Okay. And they started teaching from the platform about forgiveness and faith. And I'm going to cry. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's... I haven't talked about this in... Oh. I, haven't, I don't think I've talked about this part of it in 20 years. Oh. It's not bad. It's just a it's big feeling. Yeah. Well, it's, so, it's, it's, it's a trauma response, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I understand. Take your time. Well, Kenneth was talking from the platform about forgiveness, uh, faith, fear, and how to respond in crisis, mm -hmm. how to respond at the darkest points of life. And there was something very special in the, all I can say is there was something special in the air. If you've ever been to a concert or a performance, how music can make you feel oh, something. Sure. Absolutely. Um, a great performer can make you feel something. Yes. Kenneth is a great performer. Every one of the ministers that is part of that group that regularly preaches in these conventions, they're great performers. They can make you feel something. Right. And the air was just charged. And I thought I had never felt anything like that before. I was not allowed to go to concerts as a child, so I had never, yeah. <laughs> so it's not like I've been, I've not been to the Rolling Stones and seen this happen in a secular setting. So I thought this was like really special right. and it was just a God thing. I didn't understand the power of emotion moving through a crowd. Right. Looking back on it, I can see where it was emotion moving through the crowd, but the really important part of that is that I went home that night and I had so much anger and hurt toward my father. Mm. He had actually, <laughs> he left the state and he didn't tell anybody where he was going. So at that point, I didn't even know where he was. Oh, wow. And both of my parents had been physically abusive. But, you know, at that point, I was kind of taking care of my mother. So to admit that she had hurt me was a betrayal. Mm. So I was really focused on what my father had done. Right. When I was going to bed that night, I was thinking about everything Kenneth had taught at the convention. And I thought, okay, he said, if I will give my problems to God, God will help me solve them. Not that God would solve my problems, but he'd help me carry my burdens. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try this. I mean, this is how like naive I was. I was just like, okay, I'll try it. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll get a popsicle. Um, 
He said a popsicle would make my throat feel better. I'll get one. He said God would take care of my problems. I'll try it. So I go to bed that night and I was like, okay, God, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I want to let it go. I don't know how to do it. So do it. Well, that's all you knew. I mean, that's all you knew to ask. So why not ask? You took it literally. It's okay. That's the way you do it. Yeah, absolutely. But when I woke up the next morning, I had a little panic attack because something felt different in my body. Mm. Like my physical body felt like something was missing. And I, I, I remember sitting up in bed and like grabbing my arms and feeling my legs to make sure everything was still there. And then I realized there was just a weight going. Mm. And I can't explain that. I don't have any way to explain it. But there are so many things in the world I can't explain. Right. So I assigned that to God having lifted my burden. And those two experiences, the experience I had on the back porch at my grandparents' house, and the experience I had with feeling a physical difference in my body, and ascribing that to God having taken my burden was enough for me. And that I was all in, all the way in. I mean, you had the physical proof, you know, you felt so different. You, you believed it. And honestly, I have, I, I really am a big believer in if you believe it, it is true for you. So it really did happen for you in that way. I mean, it really did. So uh, you can decide to wake up. And I've talked about this on my podcast. You can decide every morning and wake up and go, I'm going to have a crappy day. You're going to have a crappy day. But if you wake up and say, I'm going to have a great day, you can put that whole mindset together and have a better day or a great day. So and it's one of those things where you convince yourself, you know, and I'm not saying God didn't help or whatever. But I do believe, you know, if we ask, we can maybe get him to help us. But this isn't about what I believe. But I do think that that mindset helped you. And it it pushed you forward. Well, yeah. And from that point, when people would try to argue with me about my faith, I felt something physical with my body. And you you couldn't argue with me about it. You could not make an argument with me because I knew I had experienced it like anyone would experience something physical. Right. So you stayed going to this church, the Eagle Mountain International Church. You started going to that church, and that's where Kenneth Copeland and his ministries, that's where they all are. That's where, It's like a compound, I think, at this point. You know, yeah. Kenneth always hated it being called a compound, so I laugh every time I hear that. Well, you know. Uh, Kenneth Copeland Ministries exists under the umbrella of Eagle Mountain International Church. That's how Kenneth Copeland Ministries gets its tax-free status. Okay. Well, you just answered that question. So we'll just fast forward a little bit. You did decide to get a job there um, eventually, and it was a big, huge privilege to work at that place, correct? I tried for years to get a job out there. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time. And you were already in the banking industry or that kind of service. So you were obviously good with numbers and all the things. So you were, when you were hired, you may not have been at the top at at that point, but you were in one of the top offices as far as you had full on knowledge of some of the monies coming and going. You were able to talk to Kenneth Copeland and his wife probably whenever they were around you or at least be close to them in that respect. And that was also considered a privilege, right? Well, I worked for the ministry for two years and I left and then I went back and I worked for the church for a year. So I didn't know everything all at one time. When I first started working at the ministry, I worked in the meetings department and covenant partner relations. I worked for the man who was the director of that group, who was Kenneth's right hand. Okay. 
that's pretty, that's pretty and high up. Yeah. I was in the executive offices pretty regularly, but no, I did not have access to Kenneth and Gloria just like whenever. No. Oh, okay. Nobody okay. does. Okay. Well, I meant more like you saw them probably more than most people would on a given day. Okay. Okay. Sorry. All right. Saw them, yes. Engaged with them, absolutely not. <laughs> Well, that was another thing I was to talk to you about because you were talking about, it, it feels like the hands may tell all over again when I hear you talk about him because he regarded himself as the prophet. He did not like being called, of course, his first name, no. Um, you could not call him pastor. I mean, I don't even know all the names that he would not allow you to call him or, or his wife. Sure. So part of that comes from a scripture, and I had to look this up for somebody the other day, but it's in Ephesians where Paul is naming out the offices of the church. Uh, some are called to pastors, some are called as apostles, as evangelists, as prophets, or as teachers. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth believes that he is called into the role of prophet. And he doesn't want to be called pastor because he's not a pastor. Mm. He does not pastor at Eagle Mountain International Church. He is affiliated with the church, but he is not a pastor at the church. And he does not with regularity preach at that church. He's only out at the church on special occasions if there's, you know, a, a special guest. I'm speaking present tense, but please understand that I haven't been out there at all since 2008. So what I'm saying is what I experienced between like 1992 and 2008. Okay. Yeah. And, and the thing is, he certainly had a presence on TV. So is that basically the only way that he was being seen was by television? That's the biggest way. The biggest way is being seen on television. But I said I worked in the meetings department. The meetings department put on these Southwest Believers conventions, as well as every other convention. And then there are victory campaigns where we went to Green Bay for a weekend and we were there for three days like a mini believers convention. So it's like a 10 or 12 hour day of preaching and teaching in an area. And when I say whole congregations come to these, I mean, everybody from a church will pack up and come and just, we would call sit under the word for that entire time. So it's like, if you think about big tent revivals, it's like that only in a convention center. So it's television ministry. It's that in-person kind of revival type ministry through convention. Mm -hmm. And then he is a prolific vocalist. So he has music. He has a prolific ghost writer. So there there are lots of books. The ministry has its own music studio. It has its own television studio. So, you know, it's fully produced within the ministry. What he was called, we could call him Brother Copeland. And you could call him the prophet. That was fine, but you could not call him anything else. Anything else was kind of off limits. Right. And that brings me to the bite model. I don't know if you've ever heard of the bite model. The bite model, behavior, information, thought, and emotion control. And that's basically the identification of a cult. And the reason I'm going this route with you is because some of the things you said are all the things you said, who you could talk to, who you could date, or you could not date if you were single. You had to sign a purity contract before you even started working there, I believe, if you were single. And there was all this control and all of this 
gaslighting about real life into their world. And it was just fascinating to me to hear some of the things that Gloria didn't like with the Capri pants, or you couldn't date certain people. It was just, it was, so that's the direction I want to go into. Tell me about some of those stories. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's a DIY brainwash for me. So (laughs) when By the time I got to work out at the ministry, I'd been volunteering at the ministry for a long time. I had gone to Jerry Seville Ministries International School of World Evangelism and Bible Institute. Jerry Seville is affiliated with the Copelands, and that Bible college was the one that at the time the Copelands were really helping promote. So I had made, I'm going to say I made inroads. That sounds like I was trying to social climb. I was not. But I had made inroads. And I had met people and I knew who people were. People knew me. And I think they all thought I was this silly little idiot. (laughs) But they knew I was sincere. And they're pretty smart about me being sincere in where they used me at the ministry. That's very true. Because they knew you weren't going to expose them. They knew you had a pure heart. And to me, that's they kind of used you. And I, I hate that for you. But it also made you go, looking back on it going, what the heck? How, how did I not see it? But how could you have, you were so self-indoctrined into this way of thinking that, and and you were almost on a high about how you thought about church. I was, absolutely. I was at church every time the doors opened. For a while, Eagle Mountain was having three services in the morning on Sunday. I was at every service. Now, usually I would go to one of the services and then two of the services I would volunteer in the nursery but I was up there like for six hours every wow. Sunday. And then Wednesday night, I was there every Wednesday night. And I was I volunteered for everything. When there were conventions in the area, I was a volunteer prayer minister. God, there's so many stories. <laughs> but when I started working out at the ministry, my first job, part of my job was helping to update and rewrite what was called the style manual. Mm. And the style manual was a, an employee booklet. And it told employees how to act, how to behave, the things that were right and wrong, words you could use and words you couldn't use, what to call Brother Copeland, what to call Mrs. Copeland. Mm. To this day, I find it an act of rebellion to call them Kenneth and Gloria. It is so hard for me to make my mouth form those words. Really? Oh, my gosh. Gosh. But 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 you were setting up this how to dress, how to act, what to say, um, you know, all the things. <clears throat> because when you started working there, talk to me about this purity contract. What did it entail? If you were going to work out at the ministry, you had to sign a purity contract that said if you were single, you would not be having sex before you were married. If you were married, you would only be having sex with your spouse. You wouldn't be committing adultery. Uh, so if, if you're single, you aren't fornicating. And if you're married, you're not adulterin. And you would not be engaging in homosexual acts. And you had to sign this in order to work there. And now, again, me, DIY brainwash, I was deeply into purity culture. And so that was not a problem for me. I was single. I had no intention of sleeping with anybody that I was not married to. I also had a healthy fear of pregnancy. So, you know... (laughs) Yeah. Even before I was in the purity culture. So I, there was no problem for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I understood it as this being a way for the church and the ministry to protect their reputation mm. because sexual purity is a big deal in the religious world. 
And if you've got everybody who's working for you out, obviously, as my grandmother would say, catting around, then it becomes an issue for your image. So I understood it that way. Right. Yeah. Now, where it becomes an issue is sometimes people have sex with each other and they're not married. And sometimes women end up pregnant that way. And it is only visible if you're a woman. <laughs> so right, exactly. if a man has a baby on the way, you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if a woman has a baby on the way, you can tell. And if a woman got pregnant out of wedlock, she would get fired mm. unless she knew someone. And while I was there, there were several girls who got pregnant. I say girls because they were younger than I was. And, you know, right, right. But they got pregnant and a couple of them got fired mm. and a couple of them knew the right people. And they were able to very quickly marry their boyfriends and then have honeymoon babies. And they got to keep their jobs. In one instance, I knew both the woman and the man got fired. They did get married, but they didn't get their jobs back. But if you got pregnant and you married your boyfriend, you know, you got fired, you married your boyfriend, had your baby, a couple of years later, you could come back. Yeah. But not until kind of the scandal had died down. Yeah, you got you to let that scandal die down and everybody forgets. And then you're all forgiven and everything's back right with God again. Right. <laughs> Oh my God. You know, it's so fun. You know, it just astounds me with some of this stuff because I'm a big believer in God and Jesus. And my, my listeners know this about me, but I tell you what, the church has really screwed up religion. It's really derailed uh, religion and, and in such a horrific, in my opinion, way, I'm not saying every single church has, but there are so many that have, and it so turns me off about going to an organized church now because I just, I don't, you know, I believe what I believe. I don't believe what you tell me you believe because that may be your belief, but it's not mine. So, and I'm very strong in that. And I think at this point you are too. So when you were working at the Copeland Ministries, there was a point where you were working now with a lot of their finances. You had gone up a little bit in scale. I don't think you were making much money because you had to get another job and that looked bad and they didn't want anyone knowing you had another job, even though they weren't paying you very well. And even though you're working at a Christian bookstore, that looked bad upon them too. That's that whole bite model, that emotion, information, thought, control, behavior control. You know, it's part of that. So you're working at this place and you see how much people donate, you know, during service, you know, in the congregation, you were saying, I don't even know how many you can, you can tell me and fill that part in. How much money do you think was transpiring during each service? Well, I didn't see that until the very end of my time there. When, when I started there, and this is important to know too, I feel like it, it helps people understand about me. I saw the money that was going out from the ministry when I was first working there. The department that I was in managed charitable giving outside of the normal charitable giving. So if people had a need, my department was the one that was signing off on those checks. And I was the one putting all of that information together, presenting that. So I saw money going out. At that point, I wasn't seeing the money that was coming in. And so you will hear people say in these groups, in these, I'm going to say sects, in these sects, You will hear people say, don't look at the money that's coming in. Look at the money that's going out. Don't look at what they get. Look at what they give. God looks on what they give. Look at how much they give. Mm. I was in a position to see how much was being given. And so I thought, wow, this ministry is really generous. I 
see this ministry giving, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. This is really generous. And then a couple of years down the road, I see what's coming in. Mm. And then I'm like, we're not generous at all because (laughs) tens of thousands out compared to hundreds of thousands in. Right. And that's what I was talking about. I saw at one of the conventions, I was allowed into the offering room. And it's it's a big deal to be let into the offering room. You you have to have a clearance to go into the offering room in part because there's so much cash floating around. Mm -hmm. And remember, this is back in the early 2000s before people were giving on their credit cards. So it was cash money and it was checks. And the amount of cash money, there were stacks, like vault bricks, where you just stacks and bricks of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and checks in one offering from one small convention. This was a weekend convention. But I know there were times when at the Southwest Believers Convention, there would be enough offerings throughout the course of two days to completely pay for the entire overhead of the convention and the rest of the offerings was just profit. Mm. Yet they can't pay you enough an hour to where you don't have to get another job, right? Right, because it was a privilege and an honor to be working out there. Okay, see, that's another bite model, cultish activity model. But the thing is, after a while, you started seeing some of the stuff. But also, I think there was a time, and I may be going ahead way too quickly, but the Senate Finance Committee got a hold of this, right? Mm-hmm. And they asked, I think you had already, had you already left yet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I, I worked for the ministry for two years, and then I left for two years. And then I went back because, you know, it took me a while. And then I I didn't stay at the church for a full nine months, I don't think, when I went back. And then, like, I was exposed to so much in that nine-month period. I was like, you people are evil, yeah. and I'm leaving. Yeah. And I, I left. Let me ask you this, because you left the first time because your fiancé. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff, yeah. it, including a lot of harassment. Oh. And, and then a guy that I had been engaged to had gotten a job there. And I had been told I was probably going to have to report to him indirectly. Oh and I was like, got to go, got to dip. Yeah. But then they fired him because he got in trouble for harassing another woman. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but you're all forgiven. And they're like, please come back, Lane. We, we've invented a job for you, a position for you. Yeah. So- yeah. They told me when I quit that I was running out of God's will and God was going to let Satan destroy me. <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> I really believed that. And like the week I left the ministry, I had a horrible car accident and I thought, oh, "Oh, this, this is God. God's going to let Satan kill me. Well, of course you (laughs) thought that. I mean, that's not God. That's not right. That is not the Jesus I serve. They're wrong. But it was two hard years because I had, well, you know, it's, it's hard to leave a cult. And then, yes, I got a call from the church and one of the senior pastors said, Hey, Lane. I know we're not really in a good place right now, but would you mind coming out here? I really just want to have a conversation with you about something. I'm like, wow. yeah, I, I loved this pastor. Okay. So I, I went up to talk to him and he's like, hey, so you know that guy that you were engaged to and you left because you're going to have to report to him? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, we actually, we fired him. 
I'm like, oh, oh my God. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah, well, I think I'm going to say allegedly yeah. uh, he was sexually harassing a woman and he had threatened her and her child. And uh, she had stacks. The pastor showed me the stack of evidence of emails and written communication where he had been stalking her and threatening her and intimidating her. And I was like, yep, sounds about right. And I'm like, well, what does that have to do with me? And he said, well, first of all, I wanted to apologize to you because you know, we, we all thought it was you. He told everybody you had a spirit of Jezebel, and that's why. Oh, Lord. Okay, there's the Handmaid's Tale thing again. That, you know, blessed yeah. be the fruit. Oh, Lord. I, I was definitely the problem. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, and we really want you to come back to the ministry. It was a huge loss for us. And we've created a position out here at the church. And I think you'd be great for it. And I, right then, my grandfather had just died. And again, my mother was in severe trauma. And I was trying to take care of my mom and my grandma. My mother and I had been caretakers for my grandparents. My grandfather was in really bad shape for a few years. And, you know, you should never make a decision when you're grieving. No. And (laughs) I did I did. I made the decision to leave a really good job and go back to the ministry. Oh. And, but if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have ever gotten completely free of them. Right. Because if I hadn't gone back, I would not have been exposed to the money coming in. Mm. I was then put in a situation where some money showed up on the books that I was asked to help hide. Oh. And I'm like, I don't hide. No, I don't do that. And then I I was part of the meetings where they were starting to automate giving because they wanted to make it easier for people to give. And it's so important to remember about me that I was sincere and naive. And while I was a part of this ministry and this, this cult group, I was always doing Bible study on my own. And my focus was 100% always How do I get people to the point that they can feel the peace and happiness I feel? Mm. How do I get people to the point that they have a relationship with Jesus that is going to heal them like it healed me? Mm -hmm. And how do I keep people out of hell? I didn't care about people's money. I didn't care about working for a low wage because I thought what I was doing was making a space and making a way for people to come into the kingdom of heaven. And when I went back to the church to work, I thought, well, this is going to be different from the ministry because this is, you know, this is home. This is the church. This is the heart. I'll be working under the office of the pastor instead of under the office of the prophet, which are, you know, different energies. And when they started talking about automating giving, that lit me up. I was so angry about that because the whole point of giving is to worship God with your giving. And we worship God with money because it's a representation of our time. Mm. You spend so much time working. This is your salary. This is a representation of everything, of all your energy. And when you take that money and you tithe, you're giving to keep the lights on at the church. That's the tithe. And then offerings, anything above that. That's just that, you know, we quote the scripture, sweet smelling sacrifice to the Lord. 
And God wants a cheerful giver. And there's all this instruction in the Old Testament about how to bring a sacrifice to God and the spirit with which you're supposed to do it. And it's it's intentional. Yeah. And you think about it. Yeah. And you are bringing it to the holy of holies. And you are giving it. Because you do, I mean, what, what else can you give God? You can give God your time. And that's a representation of your time. Right. And so to take away that worship aspect, I was mortified. I'm like, this is demonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, honestly, it was, even though you looked at it in a totally different way than just a, a normal person would, a secular person would going, wow. Okay. So is that the beginning of the end is why you left a second time? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then at the same time, another worker there came to me and he's like, Lane, I found something. And I, mm-hmm. I think, I think God's going to burn this place down. I'm like, why? What'd you find? He said, they're running for profit businesses out of here, but they're not paying taxes on them. Uh-oh. Like what? He's like, yeah, they, they, and he started showing me things that he had found and he had paperwork on it. And I, I'm going to say again here, allegedly, Because I can't, you know, I can't prove any of this. I was like, oh, I mean, surely there's an explanation. Surely there's an explanation because they're not crooks. Well, of course not. Not not at all. And and but that's the thing. It's just it's so well. And you know what? You were so legalistic about being an evangelical. You were so you know self indoctrined with this that you were so convinced. How could you not feel the way you felt? I totally understand how you could have been indoctrinated in this. I do, I get that. I really I everybody else was as sincere as I was. Well, that's but that was why you were perfect for it, though. They used you for that. Now it kind of backfired on them because when the Senate Finance Committee started snooping their noses around, I know by then you'd left. Weren't you afraid though? Uh, first of all. Because they would have thought if you were still working there, they would have thought, well, what are you doing with the money? Are you taking some of this money or whatever? Obviously, they didn't think so. And you helped them anonymously, I think, at the time because you were so afraid. And even talking about it now, you've just started talking about this because I think for years you were afraid to even talk or even say Kenneth or Gloria's name. Yeah. So I left in 2003 and I did still have friends out there. I mean, I'd been out there for over a decade and a lot of my social life was out there. So I heard that the Senate Finance Committee was looking into five ministries and Kenneth Copeland Ministries was one of them. Mm. And I called them and I told them who I was and I told them what positions I had held out there. And I told them I didn't have any physical paperwork. I hadn't worked out there for, you know, five years at that point. But if I could help to let me know. And for a year, no, longer than a year. It was longer than a year. I went back and forth with the Senate Finance Committee doing interviews with various investigators. Uh, I found people from the ministry for them. I contacted people from the ministry who I knew knew things that even I didn't know and got them involved. I worked with, I think it's called the Trinity Foundation. And I was giving interviews with like the Wall Street Journal, all under the promise of anonymity, because I was so afraid of their followers. Because while violence was never in, well, it's not like Kenneth ever stood on the platform and said, if you ever hear people saying bad things about me, go hurt them. He didn't say something like that, but he would talk about people who had come against him, who had ended up hurt 
or who had ended up in bad situations and he would kind of laugh from the platform. He's like, that's what you get when you touch God's anointed. You know, if you touch God's anointed, these, these kinds of things just happen to you. You open yourself up to attack and God's not going to protect you. Oh, It's a dog whistle. It's an open invitation to hurt someone who speaks out against you. It's like what happens in Scientology. That's what happens when you leave Scientology. They will ruin, they will try so hard to ruin your life and they won't go away. Now, I know this isn't quite as as severe as the Scientology thing, but it's still the same premise. It's still the same thing. Yeah, and I had known people that they, and I mean, the ministry's lawyered up. They're heavily lawyered up. And I knew people that they had destroyed financially, Mm. allegedly. Um, And and again, it's my personal experience. It's people I knew, things that I saw, a lot of it the last year that I was there, and then a couple of years after as I continued to talk to people. But when I decided to work with the Senate Finance Committee, like I said, I still had some contacts out there. I still had friends out there. So I sent an email and I put everybody that was a contact of mine out at the ministry on that email. I also emailed the pastors at the church and I told them what I was going to do. Which I think was really noble of you, by the way. I think it was real. I mean, I don't think I would have done it because I'd have been too scared. But you had that feeling in your heart going, this is the right thing to do. And I need them to know what I'm doing. Well, yeah, there's that sincerity again. I (laughs) and. I totally believe that scripture that whatever's done in darkness will be brought into the light. And I didn't want the people that I loved out there. I didn't want them to find out somehow and be surprised and hurt by it. Okay. Like I said, that was a noble thing to do just to say, listen, this is what I'm involved in now. I've agreed to help them and I can help if I need to for you guys too. I, I don't work there anymore. So I'm out of that part of it. Yeah. And then I I never heard back from the pastors. I did hear back from some of my other contacts. But after that, I never heard from anybody again who worked out there. And these were your friends? Yeah. People who had been part of my wedding, you know. (laughs) Well, and that's how cults work. They disassociate themselves with people that are no longer with their affiliation. They just, you know, you're, you're gone. You're shunned. Oh, girl, that that would have been heartbreaking for me just to know, especially when you tried your best to be kind and and to show them, listen, I'm, I'm trying to do this with the best intentions because your intentions were never bad. They were always in your mind. And I believe you the best way you could have done anything. God bless you, girl. Now, let me ask you something else. Uh, we're going to get off this because one thing I do think is very important. You have written a book. And I don't know if it's out yet, but I was so proud of you. And I want you to talk to me about this book you've written. So tell me about that, because this is nothing to do with the ministries. This is something to do with your your mother. Yeah, I have a book coming out in May. It's called Taking Away the Keys, a memoir. It's not a memoir. It's a memoir because it's a story of my mother's descent into dementia Mm. and me as her caregiver. I've said a little earlier that I grew up in an abusive household Mm -hmm. and My mother has had untreated mental illness her entire life. She didn't have access to mental health care, uh, as many people in her generation did not. And she made the best choices she could with the mental health that she had. They were not always great choices, but she always tried. And now I'm in a position where I am kind of my mother's parent at this point. My mom 
she's in a deep stage of vascular dementia and she she's still able to have fun conversations and I can still take her out and do things with her, but she's basically a child. And I have an opportunity to treat my mother the way I wish she had treated me. And I have the opportunity to treat my mother the way I wish her mother had treated her. Mm. This is a book about that. And let me tell you what a gift that is and how lovely of you to stop that process, to stop that chain of abuse or whatever you want to call it. Your mother and my mother, both of our parents, my mother was born in the silent generation as well. Uh, she's no longer living. Uh, she died about five years ago. Um, but I wish I could have been a parent to her in the way you are in some ways, just so you could say, this is how it's done, mom. This is what love is. And God bless you for that, because what a kind way to show your mom, because I, I'm a big believer in, in souls and her soul knows what you're doing. Even if she doesn't right now, she knows. She knows what you're doing. Well, I will say that's one of those really good things I got out of my DIY brainwash, because I don't know if I would have been that person if I had not gone so full force on trying to change my life. Right. Because oh, I was a be. very vindictive yeah. <laughs> I love revenge. I love revenge. You know what? I think, uh, let me tell you something. I think we all do. I mean, anybody that, you know, uh, hurts a child or hurts, you know, or murders, you just say, gosh, I just hope they go straight to hell. Well, I'm a firm believer there is no hell. So I think we all go back to source. I think we look at what we did and we do better. And we try to, I don't care if you murder. I don't care if you're Dahmer. Everybody goes back. I don't care who you are. And that's just my belief. Your mother sounds like she tried the best she could. And when it's her time, you know, she'll be waiting for you. And she's going to go, look what you did. Look what you made a difference. And your TikTok, you're talking to people about this indoctrination and the ex-fundamentalist stuff that you're talking about is helping people. I see you replying to so many comments and I know you're helping people. I know you are. I appreciate that. I never thought people would be interested. Oh my God, yes. It's embarrassing. I brainwashed myself and then I joined a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Really embarrassing. And I understand that I did not just drink Kool-Aid. I helped make Kool-Aid and I helped serve Kool-Aid. And listen, I I interview anti-MLN people. Okay, those are corporate cults. I don't know if you know that much about MLMs. Well, and that's embarrassing because, you know, you work well, but it's okay. It's a very Christian based kind of thing uh, when you do these MLMs. I mean, (laughs) you know, but we could probably talk another three hours. But I just really wanted to get your story out and what happened to you and just highlight some of the things for my listeners, because this stuff is still going on. It's worse now. Oh, I tell you. Well, and I want everybody to, is your book out yet, Lane? Comes out May 12th. May 12th. Okay. So I'm going to give everybody a link to your TikTok handle. And that way, if any of my listeners have TikTok, they can go and, and you know, follow you. You'll give them updates on things. And when your book comes out May 12th and all those things. And then, you know, by then you'll have an Amazon page, author page, and then people can click on your book because I think it'd be very interesting. I'm at the age where if my mother was still around, I could be looking at the same thing you're doing right now and it would help me. So I am just so proud of you for overcoming what you did and then also just taking such great care of your mom and doing it in such a compassionate way. I'm so proud of you for that. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And Lane, thank you so much for coming on my show. You have been so insightful. I really feel good that you talked to me today just because a lot of this stuff isn't easy and it's triggering for you and that you gave me your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one-woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again and I will see you next week.